the book of Proverbs tonight, chapter 27, Sunday night. We look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, just get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening. And then uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home and read it. Make it a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. We pick things up in chapter 27, verse 21. And the word of the Lord says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others think of him. So a refining pot and a furnace was used in ancient times in order to heat up the silver and the gold uh, and, and to reveal the quality of that silver and that gold. And the proverb tells us that likewise, the quality of a person's life is not found in what uh, they would say about themselves, but it's revealed in what other people say about them. I think to me, you know, here recently, uh, Pastor Ted Glauser went to be with the Lord, and, and you know, it's just one more person that's in heaven ahead of us, and I have so many friends there now, so many friends here too, but, you know, it starts to get divided a little bit, and and so we enjoyed his coronation service a little over a week ago and got a chance to listen to people share remembrances related to Ted. And that part of a coronation service or a memorial service is known as eulogies. Eulogy means to speak well of. And it's always fascinating to me to be able to sit and listen to what other people say about someone that's gone to be with the Lord and not just at memorial services, but anywhere. I mean, who we are, what we are, the impact that we're having in life, the quality of the life that we are living, um, that isn't something that's best assessed by us. That's best revealed by what godly people are saying about us. Verse 22, Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain... If you've ever been to like a drugstore and you see that little bowl and it's got the pestle and they put the drugs in there and they grind it down, or Indian bowls the same way uh, kind of thing. That's what it's talking about. Put a fool in that bowl and grind him down and uh, with the crushed grain and yet his foolishness will not depart from him. And this proverb tells us that some people are just fools to the bone. I mean, Nabal was, wasn't he, in the life and ministry of David? His name meant fool. I doubt his parents named him that. Probably talk about a name being attached, what people are saying about you, but that was what his name was. It meant fool. And But some people are a fools. They're a fool right down uh, to the bone. And you can crush that person, and all you're ever going to find is more fool. Right down, they are fools right down to the molecular level. And there are some times in life where you have to look at a person and you have to say, that is just the way that they are, and I can't change them. You're like me. I'm, I try to change people. I try to help. I try to, and then sometimes you run into a case like this, and it's just like, 
Only God can change this person. They are a fool down to the molecular level. Now, we're all, you know, not so bright all the way down to the molecular level, but there are certain people that are just in another category sometimes. And the good news is, though, is that the Lord can change any life. I mean, you might sit here tonight and you say, I mean, you don't know anything about church. You've wandered into this building by God's direction some way or another, and you look and you say, every decision I make is the decision of a fool. My life is a catastrophe. Every relationship is a disaster. Everything, nothing turns to gold. Everything turns to ashes. Is there hope for me? Yeah, it's the same hope for you as there is for all of us. And that is when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and makes us into a new creation. Now, that's what sinners need, don't we? We're sinners down to the molecular level and a fool down to the molecular level. Only God can break through on all of that. But sometimes it's heartbreaking. You can have a child who is a fool or a parent who is a fool or a relative or a friend and it just comes to that place where you just realize, man, there's nothing I can do about this. I just have to accept this. This is what they are and... All, the only thing that's ever going to change them is that they come to know the Lord. And, you know, that's true of every single person, but some people the need is just more obvious, more acute. And uh, so, But it's a proverb that just lets you know. Sometimes you get into situations in life and then you got a fool right up in your face and you just look at that and say, I can't fix that and I'm not going to help this person by coming down to their level. Uh, they need uh, to be born again. And uh, then in verse 23 through 27, we've got uh, five verses that provide us with kind of life lessons uh, from the vantage point of farming or ranching. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. And so it's, it was a very agrarian society, and it's talking to, about people to stay on top of and aware of the condition of your flock. Stay involved in your life. Stay involved in your family. Stay involved in your business. Stay involved in your livelihood. It's a fallen place. Things that aren't given proper attention, they will kind of devolve into uh, a mess. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. In other words, without diligence, a person can lose everything very, very quickly. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, again, diligence results in a harvest, then the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. So diligence provides uh, clothing and even the ability to grow and expand whatever it is that is our livelihood. Verse 27, you shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. And to live that kind of a life means you're going to be blessed and able then to bless others as well. So it talks about the blessings and the satisfaction of uh, good hard work. And so many passages of the Proverbs commending uh, diligence and hard work, that one does it as well. Chapter 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Uh, you know, in your, we won't put you in the wicked category necessarily, but if you're driving uh, down the highway and the speed limit is 55 miles an hour and you're driving 55 miles an hour, 
you're pretty cool with everything, aren't you? I mean, you're not worried about this or that or what. You get up to 60, 65, 70, and what are you doing? You're looking in that mirror, looking all directions, got the thing on, the scanner, you know, to see who's out there. And all. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So this speaks of the fear of a guilty conscience uh, in the, the wicked. And so even when no one's pursuing them at the moment, they know they're guilty. They know they've done wrong against God. They know they've done wrong against other people. So they're always looking over their shoulder for when law enforcement is going to catch up to them uh, or an enemy of some kind that they've made or someone that they've wronged. And so they aren't free. A guilty person is never free. You've got to be set free from guilt by God, and he cleanses us, the Bible says Jesus does, from a guilty conscience. And so the person who is wicked, the person who is guilty, they're always on the lookout because uh, sin can never, ever set you free. It's always a very miserable, taxing way to live, always looking over your shoulder. In contrast here in the proverb, the righteous man possesses a clear conscience that allows them to live boldly and confidently because they know they're right with God, they know they're right with their fellow man. And so it speaks of the pricelessness of a clear uh, conscience. And again, God gives us that conscience and we have it as we live a righteous life. Verse 2, because of the transgression of the land, many are its uh, princes, but by a man... Uh, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. And so this speaks about the fact that the prevalence of sin within a nation, it results in instability within that nation and a quick turnover of leaders. So you see a nation where um, there is uh, one, a coup and one leader is being overthrown after another, after another, after another. It means that instability has entered into that nation. We saw it in the, um, when you look at the history of Judah and Israel in the Old Testament, immediately before the northern kingdom of Israel, it, it went into captivity to the Assyrians, and then especially with the southern kingdom of Judah before they went into captivity to Babylon, the people had become so wicked that these guys were hardly boys, that were very young men that were becoming the kings, ruling for six months, ruling for 18 months, and then being overthrown, and then the next king and all, because uh, sin within a nation, it leads to instability and the turnover of leadership. And why the turnover of leadership? Because people think that the problems caused by sin and disobedience to God's commandments can be fixed by new leaders, but they can't be fixed by new leaders. And so a sin-addicted population, they want their nation to get better, but they are willing to give up their sin. And so they just keep on electing new leaders who will promise to protect their sins and even will allow them to expand their wickedness and things can only get worse as a result of it. So it's this vicious cycle. And so the solution to sin and to rebellion against God in His Word is a thing called repentance. 
But a lot of times when a nation reaches a place where it's addicted to sin, it doesn't want to hear anything about repentance. It just can't wait for the next election to then try and find a leader who can fix all of the problems but allow them to continue to engage in their sin and their wickedness and, again, even give them even greater rights to engage in even more sin and more uh, uh, wickedness. And so it is uh, just this mess that, that goes on and a lot easier to believe that the problem is a lack of proper leadership in our nation rather than that it's because of sin and then trying to fix those problems by changing the leaders rather than repenting. And of course, this is exactly where our nation uh, is. Now, conversely, this proverb uh, tells us that good and godly leaders, they bring stability uh, to a government, but uh, they are good and they are godly because they have a moral code inside of their life. Um, They've accepted God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. So they're godly men and they're good men and women who become leaders like this. But because they are good because they have this moral code inside of them that they then bring into the office with them, which then makes them virtually unelectable on a national level and even on a state level in many states of the United States once sin becomes the dominant atmosphere of the nation, of the state. And California is certainly one of those states. What do you think would have to be the condition of uh, California uh, economically, in terms of crime, in terms of morality and immorality uh, going on in order for, say, a pro-life candidate to be elected governor in this state? No pro-life No pro-life man or woman could ever at this point be elected. No righteous person could be elected governor of the state of California in our current condition where we are right now. People won't have it because they'll look and say, now you're going to take that sin away from us and you won't stop there. You'll go on to other things. And so we would rather have a state collapse rather than have our rights to sin and wickedness taken away from us. And that says a lot about the population that you and I live in the middle of day in and day out in the state of California. And more and more it's becoming a national phenomenon where what president, one person could be elected president that would take these kind of stands and uh, and be uh, electable. And so it would require, I think, in the state of California for that kind of person to ever get elected. I mean, it, you, the state would have to be in economic and moral and crime and absolute anarchy for that to happen. And so because these kind of people won't be elected, but we just keep re-electing people who are committed to sin, then the problems in the state and in the nation, they just get worse and worse and worse. You cannot violate God's commandments without there being serious consequences. That's just the way that it is, and those consequences are inescapable. And one day those problems are going to come home to roost in a big way. And our country at this point in time, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. But our country, the citizens of our country, by and large, do not yet see the relationship between sin and the problems in this nation. 
and every election. It's give us leaders who will cause us to prosper despite our sin and our rebellion uh, against God. And it's just a fool's dream, and history has proven it over and over again without exception, again, including the history of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. It's a very powerful proverb, and it's a very blind age that we live in at this point in in time. And the Proverbs are really, whoo, what a light they turn on into the human heart and human condition, exposing both wisdom and foolishness. Verse 3, a poor man who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain on a grain field that's about to harvest. It destroys it and leaves no food. It ruins, it destroys uh, the field. It's one of the great contradictions in human history not always, but very, very often, that when a poor man rises to become a ruler of the nation, uh, he's even worse in his treatment of the poor than leaders who come from upper classes. You think just the opposite would be true. We've got to get a poor person into this office because he or she will understand the poor and uh, because they've experienced it themselves and rather than, than that person then becomes a destroyer of the poor and that kind of a person is just like a freak rain. The writer is telling us on a field of grain at the time of harvest, these freak leaders are equally destructive. And so... When a person is elevated into power, it merely reveals what that person is, their, their character. We don't know anything, and this is another indoctrination that's dangerous and going on here in our country today. We don't know anything about a person's character or their ability to lead solely on the basis of whether they are rich or whether they are poor. Righteousness is everything. Proven character is everything. And that's why it's so foolish what's happening today with this pitting of the lower and the middle class against the upper class. It's a great mistake as if one class is morally superior to the other. They are not. Life is a lot more complicated than that message, though it plays well to uh, the masses and I'm not saying that taxes shouldn't be changed or whatever they come up with or things shouldn't be examined, that kind of thing. But just to say somebody is morally superior and will be better just by virtue of being poor as opposed to being rich and having wealth, that kind of thing is just uh, silliness. You have people, you have good people in every economic class and you have horrible people in every economic class of people. Verse 4, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law uh, contend with them. And so those who forsake God's law, they will praise the wicked in an attempt to justify their wickedness. And so, again, you elect wicked people because they will not expose our wickedness or speak against or act against our wickedness. And so these kind of people, they want wicked judges, they want wicked leaders who will overlook their ungodliness. And uh, the righteous, it tells us here, they don't seek the praise of the wicked, but instead they contend with them and they resist them. And so often we know uh, 
we are known by who praise us, uh, or uh, praises us, or who contends with us. It's never a good thing to be praised by the wicked. Never a good thing to be praised by the wicked. It usually means that we've compromised God's standard in our life in order to win their approval and to win uh, their uh, their praise. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said. Uh, He he wrote, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It doesn't mean that every person will persecute us, but the wicked will persecute. The sin-addicted will persecute. And so all we should not, no Christian should be praised by all people because we shouldn't have the praises of the wicked. And And none of us likes to be... Um, torn down. Nobody likes to be an object of gossip or slander or to be uh, disliked or even to be hated. But um, if the alternative is I must compromise in order to gain their acceptance and praise, then that's way too high uh, of a price. And so being rejected by the wicked, the persecution by the wicked is a badge of honor for us, and that's something that in our Christian lives we just have to accept. I mean, I accept it in this calling. I accept it as a Christian. There's some people who are going to like me. There's some people who are going to love me. And by virtue of what I do and who I am, not just as a pastor, but just as a Christian, there are going to be other people that just hate me. And that's just the way uh, that it is. But again, it's a badge of honor to be hated by that kind of person. Verse 5, evil men do not understand justice or what is right, but those who seek the Lord understand all. And so uh, evil people don't understand, they don't uh, appreciate the importance of uh, justice. And so they think that sin is bad because it's forbidden by God rather than that it is forbidden by God because it's bad. And uh, the Creator knows that to be true. So... And then on the other side, the flip side, those who seek and obey the Lord, they come to learn the wisdom of God's Word experientially. Our very life becomes a testimony uh, to His wisdom. Those who seek the Lord understand all. We live this life and we go, Lord, You are the smartest. Nobody could know us this good. Only our Creator could know us this well and give us the commandments that you have. The Word of God is such a witness to the fact that the author of this book also created us. I mean, only he could know us this well. Verse 6, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. And so this teaches us that personal integrity is more valuable uh, than money, and uh, that's something that we need to hear as Christians in this uh, culture that we, we live in. It's more valuable than money because we have to live with ourselves. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror, and uh, who wants, who can live with themselves if we're a person who's perverse uh, in in our ways, and uh, you can't have any self-respect in, in that way. And so, no person. The proverb tells us no person who knows themselves to be a dishonest person is a rich person. They may be fabulously rich materially, but they are not a rich person on their uh, innards. And so sometimes in life 
We have to choose, and I think all of us hit that place in life uh, more than once. We have to choose between being good or getting rich, and the proverb tells us uh, always to choose being good. Verse 7, whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, a wise son, an insightful son. But a companion of gluttons shames his father. And so a law-abiding, and of course the law that's being spoken of here is the law of Moses, a law-abiding son, a godly son, one who obeys the word of God, really brings joy to his parents. The companion of gluttons, this is the kind of person who is attending a feast, drinking feast they would have been in those days. And... Uh, puts him on a path that can never lead to any good, and ultimately that son will bring a disgrace upon his father and upon his family. Verse 8, one who increases his riches or his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. And so this speaks of becoming rich by way of charging people exorbitant kind of prices, taking advantage of them, uh, excessive interest rates, and usually what people are the most vulnerable to that. Not with people with money, but the poor. The poor are most often victimized by this kind of a person. And God promises to shift the wealth of those kind of people who make their money off of the poor and taking advantage of people in that condition to shift that wealth to those who pity the poor. So over the long haul, justice and righteousness prevails, and God makes sure of it. Verse 9, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, again, that's God's word, even his prayer is an abomination. So if a person will not listen to God's word and obey what God speaks to him through his word, then why should God listen to him? Why should God listen to his prayers? Why should God reveal anything more to us when we refuse to um, obey and honor what he's already revealed to us? And that kind of a person, this proverb tells us their prayer is an abomination uh, to God. If I won't listen to God, then why uh, would I expect God to listen to me? Verse 10, whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. So here's a warning against corrupting others, against tempting uh, the upright into uh, an evil way. And you think about how widespread this is uh, within our, uh, our culture. Much of the movie industry, much of the entertainment industry, television, um, video games, uh, books, magazines, uh, just a, a, all kinds of, uh, uh, of things, the Internet itself, drug cartels. I mean, all of them are designed to pull the righteous, to pull people into, uh, into wickedness, to tempt them to go astray in an evil way. And anyone who uses their power uh, speaks of anyone who uses their power or their wealth or their influence to lead people into a life of sin. Man, it's just going on all the time, all around us. There is going to be a judgment one day. I 
I'm so glad I'm saved. The things that people do, God watches everything. He hears every conversation. He's in every living room, in every bedroom, in every office. He's in every closet. He watches and he sees all of it. And what is done for the love of money, just to get money and who cares what kind of sinful addiction it draws masses of people into, they don't care. It's all around us. And the Lord warns here that ultimately it will backfire on them. And what they've done to others, someone else will do to them. Someone, every person, even the people who are enticing other people into sin, that person has a sin that will take control of their life. And someone will come into their life and draw them into the very one, two, or three sins that will destroy them. And it will turn around and it will come right back on on to them. If not in this life, then that kind of a judgment will come in the life to come. Jesus warned the person who does anything to attempt to pull any of his disciples away from him and into sin. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's, I don't know if there's a worse death than that, except by fire. Jesus said it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea than for a person to do that. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. It's going to happen. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And then in contrast in the proverb, the blameless do not have to be concerned about judgment in their future, only receiving goodness and blessing uh, from God. And so believe that about your life. Verse 11, the rich man is wise in his own eyes. There's something seductive about riches. It makes a person, it can, it can tend to make a person believe that they are smarter than everyone else, wiser than everyone else by virtue of the fact that they have a lot of money or they're rich. But notice the proverb goes on to say, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. And so a person's wealth can... Uh, tell them an awful lot of lies. And one of them, again, is that because they are wealthy, it must mean that they're smarter and wiser or better than those that uh, are poor. And, and these are not the marks of uh, wisdom in a person, but they're the marks of pride and of arrogance and self-deception. It's fascinating how God speaks of the poor here and, and declares that the poor man who has understanding, he realizes that wealth alone doesn't make a person wiser or superior to others. Now, why would the poor man know that? Because he hangs around with poor people. And he knows there are a lot of very smart, wise people who are poor at any point in time in human history. At every point in time in human history, certain things are rewarded. They're over-esteemed. And then other things are under-esteemed, under 
compensated for. And so we sometimes look and we look at these people that are very smart, very clever, very, very wise in their own areas. It just happens in the year 2014 in the United States of America. That isn't highly esteemed in terms of making money. But they're not stupid. They're very, very smart. And they are around smart people or rich people, and they're around poor people. And they know more than anyone else that a person is not any smarter because he's rich. And they also know how many people are poor and they are some of the brightest people in the whole wide world. And a poor person oftentimes, he or she's able to just look through all of that. They aren't fooled by wealth. And this uh, proverb reminds the rich uh, of that fact. Making money doesn't mean a person is necessarily wise. Then in verse 12, when the righteous rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. And the idea is out of fear. And so when you have a righteous leader ruling a nation, then the righteous within that nation rejoice. But when a wicked or unrighteous leaders rule a nation, then good men hide themselves for fear. They just hunker down and they say, this is bad news, and we've, we're in for a long season of difficulty. And so today in our nation, based upon you, our leaders, would you say that the righteous are rejoicing and confident and fearless related to the future? And that the wicked are hiding and fearful about uh, the, the future? No. Uh, what we would say is the wicked are rejoicing and they're confident and they're fearless and the righteous are hunkered down and on the defensive. And so we are as a nation on the wrong side of another proverb. Verse 13, he who covers or conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever, number one, confesses, his sin, and then number two, forsakes them, will have mercy. So we can never properly address our sin by uh, trying to conceal them or hide them. Remember, King David tried to do that, his um, uh, adultery with Bathsheba, and instead of just coming clean and going, God, I committed adultery, this is a capital crime, I can't believe in here and this and that, and what do you want to do? And Take me to heaven now or what, you know. He decided he was going to try and, and uh, cover the thing up. And he only made things worse because he ends up arranging the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, and probably several other men that were killed in that same battle unnecessarily in order to arrange for Uriah's uh, death. And so the, the, it just trying to hide our sin, it just makes a bigger mess of it. The proper way to address our sin as Christians is by confessing our sin to God, um, asking him for forgiveness of, of that sin, and then repenting of that sin. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no need for a Christian to ever hide, attempt to hide our sin. We want to walk in the light as he is in the light and be current with God. God, I blew it right there. I messed that up in a big way. 
And I confess that sin to you. The word confess in 1 John 1, 9, it means to see it the way that God sees it. God, I see that sin. I see what I did there, not how the culture sees it because they wouldn't condemn it, but I see it how you see it. And so I confess it as sin and ask for your forgiveness. And then he gives us forgiveness. But it's also very important for us to realize as Christians that when we do sin, we need to receive God's forgiveness But we also need to confess our sin and ask forgiveness of significant others that we've sinned against. So if you just uh, took your husband's head off or your wife's head off in an argument that was carnal and it was ugly, it's no good to just go take a walk or go into the bedroom and get on your knees and get right with God without also coming out confessing that sin to the person and asking for their forgiveness as well. And that's how we handle sin. We don't pretend that it didn't happen. We don't ignore it. We don't conceal with it. We deal with it as an open thing. And we are able to do that because we're Christians. And, uh, of course, for a person, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, how to deal with our sins is to put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. In verse 14, happy is the man who is always reverent. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And so this speaks of the blessing that is found in living a life of reverencing God, walking in the awe uh, of God, uh, to respect him and then to fear sin and its consequences. It tells us always results in a happy and a blessed uh, life. And it not only keeps us out of all kinds of trouble, having respect and reverence for God, keeps us out of all kinds of trouble, but there's just this beautiful fellowship that we have with God in that kind of a place. He says that hardening one's heart against God and against God's definitions of sin will only result in one day falling into wickedness and into trouble, and that always happens. And again, I hate to speak of it. I wish I could speak of it differently, but the nation that we live in is increasingly hardening its heart against God's definition of sins, his definitions, his definitions of right and wrong. And it has a very bad ending. It just has a very, very bad ending. You cannot prosper by living in violation, rebellion against, hardening ourselves against God's commandments because his commandments are the way to live. It's just the way that it is. Verse 15, like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. So the reign of a wicked ruler is likened to the viciousness and the cruelty of an attacking animal. It always seems like wicked rulers are uh, always the poor pay the worst price for those kind of leaders. The poor get poor. They get more and more marginalized. They always bear the greatest brunt of wicked leaders because they're weak and they're vulnerable and they're powerless. And so if you have a real concern for the poor, uh, don't vote for wicked leaders. In fact, uh, resist them. Verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor, but he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. And so in this proverb, we have a contrast between the person who seeks power out of a desire to enrich himself for personal gain and the ruler who hates covetousness and serves for the good of others. And so uh, that person will enjoy a long reign. Verse 17, 
a man burdened with bloodshed, guilty of murder, will flee into a pit. They're going to be captured by law enforcement and let no one help him. So don't help, don't help a murderer and don't help criminals escape justice. There needs to be, uh, there needs to be law enforcement within a nation and there needs to be cooperation on the part of citizens with law enforcement. If they lose that cooperation, then, then it gets very difficult for them to maintain law and order within a country. Verse 18, whoever walks blamelessly will be saved, but he who is perverse in his ways will suddenly fall. So a holy life is a safe life, and an unholy life is an unsafe, uh, unstable a dangerous life. And all you have to do is pick up a newspaper on any given day of the week and it bears witness to the fact that this is true. Holy living is the right way to live. Unholy living uh, always leads uh, to trouble, the insecurity of evil ways. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. And so you've got a farmer who works hard, that farmer's going to have plenty to eat. You have another farmer who likes partying and uh, all of the fun, and that all becomes uh, the focus of his life, pleasure and that, all that stuff. He, that will ultimately come to poverty in his life. So another proverb commending hard work and diligence. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. And so blessings and success are usually found in living a life of just being faithful to God, found in hard work and, and obeying the Lord. And the man who says, I don't want to get rich by means of hard work or being faithful to God. I'm going to do it by means of some dishonesty or some get-rich-quick scheme. The proverb says that not only will they not end up successful but they'll end up being punished. And so you see civil courts and the criminal courts in our nation are filled with these kind of men and women uh, being fined or being imprisoned, uh, taking advantage of people illegally to try and get rich because they want to be rich, but they don't want to work to become rich. To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. And so the importance of not allowing bribery or that kind of thing to enter into the justice system at all because it's amazing what people will sell out for. Sometimes they do these stings. There's a sting going on right now. You know, they caught some, uh, you know, legislators. And, and, but you'll see these people have these very, very prominent positions. And, and then you look, they get caught, they get busted and then you see what they sold out for. Some nothing, nothing amount of money. Uh, nothing kind of proportional to what you know, they could have done in terms of good. And just a, a, a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm glad that they always get caught because uh, that, that, that introduces a corruption into our legal system. And it doesn't need any help in becoming... Uh, more difficult than it is for uh, getting law and, and justice out of the legal system. So the, the, uh, we're not to show partiality in our judgments and we're, we're, 
we could be bribed in any way. So somebody could, should be able to come to us, not just on a uh, superior court level who is a judge or this or that, but even in our own lives, nobody should be able to come to us in any way, get us to be, to compromise related to what is right in a situation. Uh, so commending being without a, a price at all. A man with an evil eye. So, oh, there it is, the evil eye. Have you ever had anybody give you the evil eye? Well, what it means here is the guy with the evil eye here speaks of being stingy or envious or covetousness. That kind of person hastens after riches. Boy, he wants to get rich uh, in that way, but he does not consider that poverty will come upon him. So when a person is covetousness, when a person is envious, it makes us very susceptible to being duped. You know, so somebody calls you on, on the phone at dinner time and says, listen, all you got to do is send me a check for $250 and I'm going to send you a check for $250 billion. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But why do people fall for it? Covetousness. Envy. And it makes us a sucker for every kind of scam. And the interesting thing about it is that the people who run these scams, they are students of human nature, and they spot this kind of person right away, and they end up then taking advantage of that person when that person was looking to take advantage of other people. So being stingy, being envious, being covetousness it really makes us vulnerable to ultimately being swindled ourselves. He who rebukes a man will find favor afterward, and we might say long afterward usually, uh, than he who flatters with the tongue. And the key word here is the word afterward. So constructive criticism is far more valuable than flattery most times, and uh, well, actually all the time, but sometimes it can take the person who's been rebuked rather than being flattered, somebody finally told them the truth about a situation, or you as a friend said, listen, let me help you to see it this way. And people, sometimes they hear that, their feelings get hurt by it, and it can take them a long time before they realize that you did them a favor. They'll be offended for a long time. And uh, uh, so, but over the long haul, a good person is going to realize you did the good thing to them. Your rebuke was more valuable than flattery, and uh, they will esteem you more highly as a, a result of that. I think it's so important that and God help us, if any of us will only listen to flattery and we'll never listen to rebuke from another person. I mean, we're just dead ducks if we get into that kind of place. And I, and I also think just God help us if the person who's willing to say the hard thing in the body of Christ, if that person says, this isn't worth the aggravation, I quit. That can never happen. can never ever happen, or someone with that gift of exhortation then says, listen, I just, I don't, I don't want, this is just too high of a price to pay, but we've always got to be in that place where we're going to tell people the truth rather than just flattering uh, one another. And so if you have that gift of exhortation, don't bury that in a napkin and hide it. Uh, we need it. I need it. 
Whoever robs his father or his mother, oh, these are, this is the worst of the worst, this kind of person. And then says, it's no transgression is the same as a companion, the same as a, is companion to a destroyer. And so the child who, speaking about an adult child who steals from their parents, they take advantage of their parents in their old age, and they convince themselves, listen, I'm just taking money that is going to be mine anyway. They don't need it, and all of these justifications that occur. And the proverb puts that kind of a person in the same class as a robber or a destroyer or a murderer because they are destroying the wealth of their parents. They're destroying the peace of mind of their parents. It's terrible when parents, adult children, uh, bully and and and. And it's becoming so common now. And another characteristic of the age, do that to their parents. Parents are to be cared for, looked after in their old age and their uh, vulnerability. Of course, Jesus rebuked this whole practice when the religious leaders of the Jews had established the law of Korban, where the Bible, uh, the law of Moses says, honor your father and your mother, which was correctly understood to be that when they're old, you take care of them. In the old days, I mean, there was no Social Security, no retirements, any of this. Your family was your Social Security. It was your security. And so when they're old, then they need to be taken care of in the same way that they took care of you. And here are these rich religious leaders. They're wanting to get out from under that. And so they would take all of their wealth and they would say, it's korban. The word korban means dedicated. They said, all of this wealth that I have is dedicated to the Lord. And so essentially, actually, I'm very, very poor. I have no money to take care of my parents. And so what can I do? And they found this whole religious thing to do in their mind, and Jesus, of course, rebuked it. Verse 25, he who is proud of heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. And so pride always causes trouble. It always causes strife because pride, which means to see myself above, pride is always expressed at the expense of other people. And people notice it and people resent it. And so there's going to be conflict as a result uh, of that. And here the pride is being expressed by a love for power or material things that makes me calloused in my treatment of people. I just push past them, run over them, whatever i got to do to get to the top before uh, they do. And the proverb tells us it's better to trust the Lord to prosper us and to express that trust in the Lord by treating other people well, and then uh, God will take care of us. We don't have to beat anybody out for that home. If God has that home for us, there can be 20 other people trying to buy it, and they will not be able to buy that house. And it's the same thing related to a position, related to a job, related to a ministry, no matter what it might be. If God has it for us, he will keep it for us. No one will be able to take it away from us. It's for us, and we don't have to abuse and mistreat people and become like the world in order to gain these things. Treat people well, treat them respectfully, treat them the way we would want to be treated, and then God will take, and it will never cost us blessing for having uh, done so. Verse 26, he who trusts in his own heart, that is in his own wisdom, 
is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. And so trusting in our own wisdom in this life is dumb. That's known as clarity in the Bible, but I can say amen to it. Anybody else? Can I get an amen? Trusting in your own wisdom? How, where'd that get you? Saved. <laughs> That's where it caught me. <laughs> I mean, I knew better. I had been raised around the things of the Lord at least for a part of my life. Ah, oh, now I become an adult. No, I know so much. Oh, God, please. <laughs> After a few years, I am so dumb. And that's... And that's a fault because I'm, I'm so unimpressed with my own wisdom, only impressed with God's wisdom. So I can sometimes be um, pretty direct in talking about the wisdom of man and foolishness and being dumb and all of that stuff because it's how I feel about myself and how I feel about any, anybody really in comparison to God's uh, wisdom. And so it tells us that obeying God and walking in his wisdom is always safe. Verse 27, he who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes, uh, the ideas from the needs of the poor, will have many curses. And so the Bible again talks so much about uh, generosity to the poor, that God blesses that generosity, and that a person who is generous to the poor, God will always take care of that person. Now, that's quite a promise to put God to the test to, but it is always, always true. The person who ignores the needs of the poor says, we'll have, we'll have many curses or difficulties or sorrows uh, come their way for doing so, either from God or one day when we find ourselves in a pinch and we need a little bit of help. Everyone will remember, you never helped anyone when you were in a, had the opportunity to do so, and they'll be hesitant to do so in our life. So, you know, what goes around comes around a little bit in a sanctified sense. When the wicked arise, men hide themselves, and when they perish, then the righteous increase. So very similar uh, to verse 12, when the wicked rise to power, the population hides itself out of fear, hides all their money, hides all their everything, you know. And, uh, but when the wicked rulers are overthrown, the righteous are allowed uh, to thrive again without hiding, and they come forth. And so uh, emphasizing the same kind of truth. We'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up in chapter 29 next time. Let's stand together. And let's pray together. Thank you for your wisdom, Father. Only you could know us this way. Only our Creator could see things as clearly as you do. Only you could produce a wisdom that never fails a single person, only does good in our lives. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. But we thank you, Lord, so much that you are a wise God and that you share your wisdom. And we stand here tonight horrified at the thought 
that we would not have the privilege of being able to live a life in your wisdom, but that we would be doomed for the rest of our life to live under our own wisdom or the wisdom of man. And that thought is so abhorrent to us, so frightening to us, Lord. We have so come to treasure and to love your wisdom. Thank you for allowing us to study these things tonight. We just take a moment as your people standing before you. And Lord, that one or that two or those, that th- third thing that you might have spoken to us where we're living in our own wisdom or the wisdom of the world it's far from your way. We embrace, Lord, and choose to go your way. And we pray that as we cling to those things that you've spoken to us tonight, that you would make your wisdom a reality in those areas of our lives as well. For our good and for your glory, Lord, and for the good and the blessing of the people that we live with and our family and our friends and our neighbors and who we go to school with and who we work with. And we ask all these things of you tonight, Father. We give you our praise and our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and received that forgiveness and everlasting life and the confidence and the hope of heaven and all the things that are found in him, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship that you have been created for. And that's, you know, some people, they come to know the Lord and they... They come to know the Lord from the mountaintop. They, they, they reach every goal they've ever had in life. They're at the pinnacle of life. They get up there and it's all just absolute emptiness. And they realize, I have completely missed it. And then other people, we come to know the Lord because we're all the way down in the valley, sometimes in a valley so deep because of our own wisdom or buying into the wisdom of the world or whatever. And we realize, I am not smart. I can't govern my own life. I need to turn to God. But wherever that is on those two extremes or in between, there's always hope in turning to the Lord. There's hope for you. 